welcome to a brand new episode of Queering Daisy. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to DJ Reka, who is the founder of Basement Bangra, one of New York City's longest-running club nights. She's a pioneer in merging Bollywood and Bhangra sounds in contemporary electronic dance music. But more than that, Reka has been an icon in the South Asian LGBT movement for many years. She shares with us her journey with Basement Bhangra and beyond, and we get to talk about some of the history of the movement in New York City and how it related to the queer spaces that DJ Rika often played. So without much further ado, here's DJ Rika. Welcome, Rika. Thanks for being on Queering Daisy. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a longtime admirer of your work, but I'm also very grateful to call you a friend as well. But I'm excited today to talk to you about... Um, the legendary journey that you've been on and the way that you've impacted so much of music culture and, and how so much of it's in New York, especially, but around the world have, have learned about South Asian music and Bangra and all the things we love. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to first start off talking about the one and only Basement Bangra. Um, you c- completed 20 years. Congratulations. Thank for that. you very much. Um, What's what's it been like post, and how do you kind of look back on it, or is it too soon? It's not too soon. I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was just uh, I, I was really kind of excited on how it ended. Yeah. Um, and it the last couple of shows were really phenomenal in so many ways, and um, I thought it was a real fitting end, and it was a certain chapter of mine creative life and my personal like engagement with the party and yeah I mean we did our last show we went back to the venue it started at which um SOBs which was not not an easy decision for various reasons but sucked it up uh, on the advice of my my dear friend who had worked with me uh for many years Deepa Jiva, who is a monster beast on her own. Uh, she's a master of her own hustle. She um, she was really the one who was like, you got you got to go back to SOPs. <laughs> like, okay. So we did it so we could end the party um, and to round people up again. And, yeah, so it was um, you know, after 20 years of doing a party for the first Thursday of the month, um, it was fitting to end where it started because – even though we were, we spent five years at La Poisson Rouge, the nostalgia and the, the, the vibe in that space is, is unique. And then I had planned it for two years, actually. Mm-hmm. I had my eyes on summer stage, and I dropped the seed. Uh, I didn't pitch it for the year. I pitched it two years prior to the I said, look, hey, what's up? Mm-hmm. Not now, but in two years. <laughs> this is I'm hoping that we can do this. Oh, my God. And, uh, and then I just, you know, we, we made it happen. Um, with a lot of support from, from, from the folks that I work with and the artists who participated. Uh, and I wanted to get people that had a relationship to the party, had a relationship to me musically or people that I had connected with. So August 6th last year, 2017, Central Park, did our final show and there were 7,000 people there. 
That's incredible. I mean, and I mean, it was free. That's my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. Well, all Daisies will appreciate that. Everybody fact. wants free. <laughs> all ages, no babysitting. For folks that, for some reason, may not be familiar, sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about Basement um, and just your origins with it? Like, what inspired mm-hmm. you to do it, and and how your love of music maybe evolved into doing something like Basement Bhangra? Sure. So yeah, we should assume that nobody knows <laughs> anything uh, because there's too many things to know. So Basement Bhangra is a monthly club night that I started in New York City in 1997. I just started uh, sort of the first few years of my DJ career. I had a partner then, DJ Joy, who's a guy, let's be correct, cisgendered man. And um, we were doing private events, we're doing some some club stuff. That was the time when there was an emerging Desi party scene. I had started DJing with my cousins doing whatever gigs available, birthdays, anniversaries, et cetera, and then slowly evolved into doing fundraisers, community events, did a lot of, did all the early Color Me Queer parties, and uh, eventually, you know, there was a burgeoning scene, a scene of, of young South Asians finding club spaces, and Basin Bunga was my attempt to create a space that had a very specific musical point of view, and was devoted to music, not hooking up. I mean, not to say there wasn't, <laughs> hasn't been hooking up there. There's been plenty. Um, but I, at that time, I was getting a lot of directives to not play, don't play too much bhangra. It's, it's like t- t- too low class. Within the South Asian community, we have our own biases and, and um, internal racism. Um, mm. And then don't. And then we have just plain racism, which is don't play too much black music. If you think about 1997, hip hop is a is sort of a it's not a ubiquitous mainstream genre that it is today. So it was associated with, with well, these to call them hoodies. We don't want hoodies at our party. The perception of, of, you know, men that would cause trouble in fights and stuff. I mean, I'm always like, it's the, it's the, the dressed up dudes. That <laughs> yeah, you got to worry about yeah. the, those guys that you think are, are the Punjabi hoodies. They just want to dance. You know, <laughs> they don't really care. They yeah. ain't trying to get your girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, yeah, that was the impetus of the party. Um, I, I wanted to do it on Thursday at that time because I didn't want to compete with like competing with other folks. I wanted it to be a little bit less bridge and tunnel. It's a very New York phenomenon. And, uh, yeah, I, I believed in, you know, appointment, make a date, stick to it. And I think that really caught on. How has music influenced your life? Because when you look at Basement Bhangra and your legacy throughout beyond Basement Bhangra too, mm-hmm. you've been this kind of ambassador for, for South Asian radio, for Bhangra, for, for bringing sounds that folks either were playing on the hush-hush or on the underground and kind of bringing it to the forefront. How, how did you find your passion for music and how has that kind of played into your journey throughout um, I don't know. I mean, I think this this con- construct of passion, fueling, journey, and success is um, is one that is is uh, is it can be a little simplistic. I oh. think I think the idea of passion and follow your passion is a real privileged space. Oh. I think if you're an artist, you do your work, you do your art, and you try to find ways. And what happens in the bigger level, or what happens after, happens. Um, it was to my great surprise that this party got the attention it did. It was to my great surprise that it blew up like it did. I didn't know. I didn't anticipate it. I was 26 years old. I was trying to finish college. I probably had a 
a lot of day jobs. You know, I was buying, <laughs> definitely for the first few months, I'd buy clothes, return them because couldn't afford to keep them. I was hustling really hard, doing private gigs on the weekends, having some sort of office temp day job, I'm sure, trying to finish school, undergrad, and trying to get other gigs. Um, so keeping it all in. So I guess I always say I didn't choose it, it chose me. It just was like one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And I think I always had a deeper connection to want to be able to contextualize what I do in the music. Um I came from an activist background. My my first, the the audience of the party were through my ac- academic friends, PhDs in training at the time, as well as activists that I worked in. And, you know, I wasn't a member of Saga, but Saga was one of the organizations that was always around. And Color Me Queer was a very important um, night and a party that was unique in its, its way. Um, the Color Me Queer of today is very different than the Color Me Queer of when it started. And that's a, that's a history that I think also needs to be um, remembered and acknowledged for how it, how it uh, emerged and where the origins, origins were. So, How do you mean that it's different and what do you... Well, Salga started, um, it had a more of a political bent to it as the time that it started, queer rights... Queer wasn't even in mainstream parlance. Gay rights, LGBT rights were still forging in a certain kind of way. And uh, within our community, too, like, <clears throat> do can we march in the India Day Parade? No, we're going to march with Sucky. We're gonna, Sucky's going to let us march behind them. Sometimes you can march. Sometimes you can't march. The organization that, you know, parades become this sort of battleground. It happens in the Irish community of public displays of identity, whereas... I'm always like, well, in this, you know, and then they would have these weird reasons why you could or you couldn't, and sometimes you could and sometimes you couldn't. Now I don't think it, it, it's as much of an issue in the same way because there has been a mainstreaming of, of gay culture. But Color Me Queer was a party that was a fundraiser for Audrey Lord Project, and it was designed in solidarity. It was a people of color queer party. It was not a Desi, just a Desi party. So the idea was to have a space because we know within the queer community, just because you're gay doesn't mean you're queer, doesn't mean you're not racist or classist, you know? Um, and Audrey Lord was a champion, you know, her work and is, is rooted in, in queer feminist thinking of intersectionality. So that's the color me queer parties were rooted in that way. And, and, and the fun of DJing those parties was to acknowledge, to not let the Daisies dominate the program to make it for everyone. So there was a, and we used to do, the parties used to happen Saturday night Mm. for a long time. And then some other orgs, uh, not connected kind of usurped that night and then color me queer. I mean, Salga being, being a volunteer run, not having people always in that world to find the spaces ended up shifting to Sunday night because Saturday night in New York is tough as it is in pride month. It's even tougher. And then I don't think now it's in line with or works with Audrey Lord Project. Yeah, it doesn't. I, uh-huh. You know, it's interesting that you bring up ALP. I wasn't going to talk about ALP, but I have been recently attuned or like have found out recently um, about like accusations of, especially for Trans Day of Remembrance, which mm-hmm. they do on Friday of the weekend of Pride in New York, mm-hmm. um, of them being like 
anti-black and being transphobic and mm-hmm. I don't and it's I haven't really Who being been anti-black like the or, the organizers that ALP? Are, are at ALP yeah are and, anti-black and and, and transphobic and like this is from people that I read a Facebook post about it yesterday because that's so that's like a staff member that was working there that got harassed or like you know and there are trans folks in the South Asian community that recently someone posted are you going to this year's T-Day you know the Trans Day of Remembrance because is it a safe space? Are they acknowledging the the, mm-hmm. the legacy of trans women, of black women in... Well, this is a real sticky I mean, subject. Yeah, and all I say is we can't use Facebook as a source of information. No, for sure. Yeah. And it's complicated. I have some offline opinions. I know yeah. some of the folks that have done amazing work there. Same. And I know that, yes, there have been some leadership that's been accused of all that. But in accusing some people who... It's complicated. You're, you know, some people have accused a black, queer black woman of whatever. And then in this culture that we have, the takedown culture, an accusation flies and it just proliferates in a, right. in a deeper way. I think by and large overall work or ALP has done is phenomenal. No, I agree. And um, I'll, I'll just disclaimer that I don't know enough about this to like. So the other but. problem is, is like we need to have the space in organizations. We are a product of systemic oppression and inherent biases, all of us, as are these organizations. And we need to find spaces to address and work through them in a way that if a place is not perfect, no place is, that the the momentary leaders of the organization aren't just completely thrown away. Um, but, you know, we let's not, yeah. let's not delve too deep. I just think, like, for, for me, my in doing those parties, so the parties were... Uh, a couple of them were at this place, which doesn't exist, called Demerara, which was a site for early Desi parties, not queer. And then we did many nights um, on the pier next to the frying pan, and those parties were epic. <laughs> epic. We're talking about a thousand people. I was doing six-hour sets. It was just so much fun. It was amazing. Well, you talk about creating spaces. I mean, that's been, at, like, as an artist, you that's that's been so much of your legacy as well and so much of the work that you do. Um, talk a little bit about creating spaces for South Asians, for queer folks, trans folks, like or beyond the systems of oppression, places where people feel safe, um, you know, trying to address some of these biases that you were facing head on when you started out. Like, talk a little bit about what creating spaces like that has been. I mean, I don't know if I've always been successful because it's never to my, like, satisfaction. I mean, and how do you measure success, really? I mean, that, right, yeah. what is that? Yeah. I mean... You know, I think the way you create space, club spaces, is you, it's like, and it's what queer organizations do. I mean, this year there's a big no cops at the pride parade. It's like, um, you know, you, first of all, queer people make less money. (laughs) Make it affordable. That's step one. Uh, Make sure the staff understands, like, how to, like, interact with folks. Um, You know. I'm a physical, like, representation of queerness, so I think that helps. Um, Don't do gender, like, ladies-free crap, shit like that, you know? I hate that stuff. Um, I mean, that's what I do is just find spaces that feel welcoming, um, program people in a way that feels comfortable. Marketing, however you do it, is, is make it as accessible as you can. That's what I try to go for. So what has post-Basement Bangra Life been like for you? Uh, I went right into 
graduate a graduate program. So I didn't even, went on an Alaskan cruise <laughs> with my girlfriend's family, and then uh, that's it. Uh, it's been great. I miss I miss the daily the week the monthly DJ appointment of mm. like flexing flexing sounds. I still do my weekly podcast. I'm going to plug my podcast. Yeah, going beyond. Um, and you know, programming music on the podcast is one thing, but getting to play it live. So I've been doing gigs, but not as many. Um, I don't miss it. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't miss like the production of the night, the flyers, the marketing, the promotion. Mm. I don't miss any of that. I don't miss dealing with a venue or dealing with, you know, certain aspects of like interactions of like whatever the curate, the physical night itself yeah. or the stress of it. Um, and just, I'm, I got my Thursdays, my first Thursdays back. <laughs> time is like very amorphous in a different way. I don't keep time by when it's basement. When yeah. it's, you know, sometimes my period aligns with basement. Sometimes it doesn't. It's like, <laughs> it's probably too much information. But, uh, yeah. So, no, I mean, it's it's cool. I mean, it, the thing is like, it's like, an, I, always, I always compare it to being an actor. It's like, there may be that one role that people know you for most. Yeah. And so that's what they want to know, or you have a one-hit song, and that's what they want to hear. But my musical career, my artist career, is far deeper and wider than that. So. You have performed with some amazing folks. Like, what has been your favorite, either venue or artist, or like? I mean, you've, you've, it's amazing. You've performed with some like amazing folks. Like, what has been the most fun that you've had for a gig? I mean, the most amazing gigs are never fun until they're in it because I'm stressing about them. <laughs> true. Um, That's so true. I think the funnest gigs for me are when I see the most diverse audiences. Like Brooklyn, mm. like, like you know, there ain't nothing like playing like the Brooklyn Museum for a Saturday, you know? <laughs> like, that is unbelievable cross-section of Hasidic Jews, Caribbeans, Desi gentrifiers in mm. Brooklyn, <laughs> all ages... You really, people know all, they're very wise on their music. Those are fun. Yeah. Uh, In front of crowds. Um, You know, there's no one thing. There's no, uh, it's hard to nail it down to one thing. I mean, I think those are the characteristics of the gigs that are good. I mean, I had one night, I always remember this epic night I used to do weeklies at this lounge called Kush, which isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was a snowstorm. (laughs) And there was, and every night, you know, it was free. People would, it was like, you know, on someone's list of, you, you go out in the Lower East Side, you go hit one place, hit another place. So people would move in and out through the night. And it was a Middle Eastern themed place. So some days it would, there was a midnight belly dance. So some days it'd be frap rows. Some mm-hmm. days it'd be like, you know, a bunch of Turkish people. Some <laughs> days, so the music had to change, mm. keeping that vibe um in mind, sometimes we'd know ahead of time. Some people booked a bunch of tables and uh, whatever. And this night was, there was like, and I was doing it on the down low. So I was doing basement and all the other things. And I was secretly like Friday nights at Kush. Yeah. So sometimes they see kids are walking and be like, what, what? <laughs> and there was a snowstorm and nobody left. There was a bunch of Daisy people came in and I just went to town and people were dancing <laughs> on the bars and later found out there were some nefarious activities in the basement (laughs) to boost uh, the mood let's just say that and I I think that's one of my funnest nights I remember I I wish I could nail the date or the time but just some gigs are just just like they're such highs I mean I used to DJ in DC at the Black Cat a lot and Mm. that those parties were pretty epic too Mm. um 
And that started through a girls DJ collective that brought me up, mm. that grew into its own thing. So I don't know. It's 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 hard to say one thing. Um, yeah. Well, you mentioned this this collective. I was going to ask a little bit about. We, we talked before we started recording about like the DJ space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with a lot of the folks that I've had on the podcast, I've been really interested in in the art and the work they do because almost anything outside of you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer is still somewhat, even for the the second generation or first generation immigrant communities and South Asian communities in the U.S., still outside the norm. You know, um, as a DJ, as a South Asian DJ, as a queer DJ, as a woman, how how do you reflect on the DJ space and how has that been for you? How has that changed? Are there is there more representation? Um, cause you, I mean, I hate to say it because it is cliche, but like you're breaking the norm, you, you blazed your own trail and, and it, it was just you chugging along and, and hustling, but at the same time, you know, you, you broke barriers for other folks. And, and do you think that's changed since you, since you started? Well, I wasn't completely alone. There were other people for sure to acknowledge other people. One is Gita Javeri, who also DJed some of the earliest Saga events still DJs actively. She does all of them work. There's uh, other DJs I met in Canada at Days for Days, which was this annual cultural festival very queer forward. So there were some DJs there. Vinita uh, Amita, who runs Basharam in Toronto still, and a couple other folks. Um, it, to say DJ space is, is like to say music space. It's so broad. <laughs> right. um, I think by and large, there's just more and more women. There's more and more queer folks. There's more and more people. People are finding their own lanes. Um, if we look bigger, I mean, sexism is rampant. Homophobia is still there. Like, you know, even within the South Asian community, it's still it's still a bro fest. Even with the sensitive guys, <laughs> you know, it's like I see it all the time when there are events that highlight South Asian women artists. Men do not show up except as plus ones. Mm. Um, which is atrocious, and even some of my male colleagues, broaderly broader in the arts, I don't think they step up enough and mm. support. Um, so I mean, there's just more people. Like I used to struggle to find to book a, a female or queer DJ. Now I don't. Mm. You know, there's many, and there's many more, and there's many more coming. And that's great. Yeah. What's next for you? Like, what's Looking long-term, like, what's next for you? I don't know. <laughs> Just trying to keep it mm. going. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm in grad school right now. Mm. Doing a, I'm, I'm dubious about talking about it. I'm like, I don't want to talk about things till they're done. Yeah. I'm halfway yeah. done now. So I'm working on trying to write some more, mm. reflect more about what I've been doing. I'm specifically interested in DJ culture and mm-hmm. Looking at it as a cultural practice, um, something I know a lot about. And I just think, you know, it still happens, whereas people see me only as the curate, not even the curate, I'll, I'll use the word I hate the most, as the promoter. Uh, especially they see men. They just can't see a lot, a lot of spaces is not register as like, actually, I'm actually also a DJ. <laughs> and I think in terms of my repertoire and palette, like where I'm so... I think I'm versed in a lot of styles of music in deeper ways than other folks. Like people are like, they shun the sort of mainstream Daisy stuff or they like the other stuff or they're more hip hop. I like it all. Yeah. I can do anything. You know? <laughs> um, 
and that's that's what I like. So I've done gigs where I don't play one lick of Indian music, you know. Yeah. Or um, you know, I'm very musically, I say musical fascist with my Bollywood nights. I would not play. I, people have been begging me to play the bass and bong anthem. I go no. <laughs> I play the instrumental. I can't no. Or then I'd get really drunk and I would play it at the very end. You know, there's no rules, but um. I mean, my parties, my events always are have like a real creative focus and lens, and I want to create that energy. So when you go to a Bollywood disco party, I want you to feel different than basement. I want it to feel musically different. I want the space to feel different. I hope it works. I don't know. Um, but how as a DJ do you, I mean, this is, you don't have to like reveal trade secrets or anything, but like how do you read the room and how do you create that energy? Like I, having been to both Basement for a long time and then Bollywood Disco, was like blown away by the Do you difference. feel like the difference? It was so different. <laughs> and I, like my brother is like a super, super Punjabi Bhangra fanatic. Yeah, but he goes to, he's been he's, to Bollywood Disco a lot. <laughs> yeah, but like he loves Basement, like that's his jam, yeah. right? And I like Basement. Uh-huh. It's like, I feel like I'm home. You yeah. know, but I'm not great at bhangra dancing. Right. When I go to Bollywood disco, I'm like, this is my stuff. And, like, right. it's you. It's your flavor. It's the space that I know and come to love, like, mm-hmm. being at your gigs. But it's a, such a different vibe, and it's, like, so much it's more my skis. The music's different. I mean, yeah. I'm just going deep. I'm I'm going. And there are a lot of DJs, uh, especially in New York, where you, they, do, they do the old vinyl house night. Yeah. You just, you're true to the, the, the vision of the night. Bollywood disco is a deep, deep dive into Bollywood music. Yeah. Initially, the concept was disco and disco flavored, mm. but that's we get a little bit of that, and it's become a broader idea. And some of the idea around Bollywood disco was some of the stuff I used to really go deep in, like at the Call Me Queer parties, mm. like stuff you play for queer folks, stuff that is like you're queering the music when mm. you're playing songs for like you know drag queens or like dances or just how queer people um, perform culture and stuff. So, like, that's that's sort of, like, embedded in that. I mean, the, the difference is, like, the audience has have figured out what they're going to get, mm. so we don't get the overlap. And, you know, for each party, it's at some point becomes clear that, yeah. I mean, I think my, my audience knows don't go to Bollywood disco if you want to have, like they know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But then I think there's also an appreciation for both styles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think it's like, yo, this is a party about my love for Bollywood and I want to go deep and I want yeah. you to sing the songs with me and I don't want to play a lot of remixes yeah. <laughs> and I want to keep it current, but I want to, I want to go in. I just want to dig deep. That's really the, the goal of the party. And I think what makes it work is, and it, and this is how, this is what creating space is about. Is like the audience is part of the night. Mm. The audience gives me the entry. In terms of room reading, you just look, you see, <laughs> they getting it, they not getting it. After a while, as a DJ, if you are paying attention, and some people never pay attention, <laughs> you see what works and what doesn't work. Mm. You know what people know, and then you also need to have the information in your head, sort of. People bring their politics, their histories, their likes, their dislikes. They bring it onto the dance floor. They respond to the things they know, the things that are familiar to them. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to hear. You know, that's yeah. what they know. I mean, so Bollywood heads, they want the latest music. Yeah. But there's also tried and true classics. And it's it's like that thing of like wavering between becoming too cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, and, and even though it's it's sort of commercial, mainstream pop music, yeah. there's still curation. There's still like, you know, I don't play every song that ever happened. I play the songs that I like. Wait, I must ask, though, now that you've talked about it, 
What is your take on all of these stupid remakes? Not now that you Which, know how oh, like, the, the, the stupid the, like Hindi songs yeah, yeah, yeah. that are like because you're. I mean, as as an artist, you mean, like, you mean they're they're just mining through '90s bhangra. And like first, it started with titles. It was like we're going to take song titles and make them like that, film. That's always happened. That's right? been happening. But then you had like in the the late '90s, early 2000s, you had the DJ Akeels of the world, right? Which were on every soundtrack. You had a remix. Now well, let's 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 put some history to this conversation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> The remix is a product of North American DJ culture mm-hmm. because North American DJ started making remix CDs. Mm-hmm. Little J, DJ Sand was in a group, oh, TS Sounds from Chicago, a bunch of other producers started bootlegging, like mm-hmm. making remixes. Right. Bollywood caught wind of it <laughs> and they were like, what? Because people didn't want to buy just the music. They wanted a beat on yeah. it. Make these big Casio interludes. People would take the songs, edit it. They wouldn't have the stems. They would yeah. just creatively put it on top. Mm. And they were infinitely danceable <laughs> and, and better. Or versioning, um, yeah. which is how remixes happen today in, in all genres. So then they were like, screw this. We're going to just put the remixes. We're going to make these remix ready. I felt like it had such a deep and positive influence on Bollywood production mm. music in general. Also, by the mid '90s and it, before '91, mm-hmm. there was a there was a, a limit on what kind of instrumentation and gear could come into India. Mm. Right then, there was liberalization. Right. So then, the doors, the floodgates opened. Right. So there was better access, physical access to production technology mm. and hardware. And there's more fluidity, globalization. All these things affect how things are made. Right. Um, Bollywood always is, um, I mean, I'm going to say this, this is my idea. (laughs) Bollywood is a sponge. The, as a cultural, as a, as an art form, it, it imbibes what's around it. Uh When something works, it gets mass repeated. When Jolie Kepiche happened and there was the folkies thing, there was a hundred songs like that. Yeah. When one remake of a Punjabi song happened, then they're like, oh, my God, what else happened then? Dil Chori Sada Hogya. Okay, Ikbeg, let's God. redo Bachke. Then they did let's the do... Knight Rider song. And yeah, then they, they did Bachke. It's just, then they've and done, it's like, it's ter- yeah, so, like, how? Like, why? Yeah, but the thing is, how do that's, we stop it? That's, we don't need to stop it. It's pop music. But it's like you're taking, you're also, like, as the justice. But that's the as, nature of, it's, it's a derivative art form. It's inherently derivative. Aren't you, not corrupting, what's the word? Aren't you taking something that worked in it? Like, when you do Ek Do Teen, it was iconic in the 90s for a reason. It was the performer, it was the song, it was everything. And then you're taking it and you're changing it, and you're changing how it's shot, you're changing the audio. And it, like, you take away what, for us, made it, like, classic for a new generation. I'll say two things. Yeah. A good song is a good song. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. What they're doing with Ek Do Teen, first of all, are you looking at the video? Or are you listening to the song? They're two different things. Yeah, agreed. As a DJ playing the new version, mm-hmm. way better produced, sounds louder, yeah, more no, bass. Yeah, not going to argue. Dil, the Dil Cheese remake, same yeah. thing. Dil Cheese is really a ripoff of Nusrat's Must Must. All the Bollywood disco stuff are direct ripoffs of disco songs. Mm-hmm. Every. Early Bollywood music or Hindi film music was from classical stuff, from yeah. folk music. It all comes from somewhere else. The idea that it needs to be original and pure or not be referential is is not how culture or not how this style of music is made at all. Mm. 
I do think there's a lot of innovation and new stuff that's original in Bollywood soundtracks and in independent releases in general. So that's there. But it's also like you can take old stuff and make it new again and it can sound terrible. I personally think the new stuff sounds fun. Mm. I play it. It's fun. It makes it dancier. I mean, we still, it's dance definitely we still listen to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, playing the new hum. I play the old Hama. The new Hama. It's like, you know, I, for fun, I'll play the old one. Yeah. But all pop music's like that. What did Puff Daddy do? We take hits from the 80s, make them yeah. sound so crazy. That's <laughs> Hip-hop is based on sampling, on yeah. reiteration. Biggie Smalls is all juicy, you know? Is M. Tume song. Like, that's... The idea of creating contemporary dance music is about mining other sources. That's mm-hmm. like inherent to the art. And Bollywood is is all about sponging. Yeah. You know? It's all about taking stuff. I mean, even some Bhangra songs do that. Like High yeah. Heels is basically, you know, Dilbito, yeah. Ole Ole. It's Ole Ole in High Heels. Come on. Right. You know that, right? <laughs> right? That's not a surprise. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's... Why, and why does that work? Because mm. the familiar is important to people. Mm. There's a connection there. Right. Like, oh, the nostalgia it's it. like, oh, shit, that song, you yeah. know? And so that that's why it works. Now, it has to be done well. Yeah. But um, I, I got no judgments on yeah. it. Fair enough. I, I, I think the idea of purism and like, oh, it was better before, that's just, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't buy it. It's like, is it a good song or is it not a good song? Yeah. Um, you know, some when they made the Dawn remakes of Kite Gipmon, I didn't care for that. I don't ever yeah. play that version. The the new Layla Layla, sure, I'll yeah. play that one. You know, Layla Layla, in fact, has been done so many times. <laughs> yeah, it has. The the Shah Rukh Khan yeah. Move Race, whatever that one is, sort of stuck. It's been done way many times before that. <laughs> right. it's, it's a banger, you know. Yeah. Um, as we wrap up, what I want I have two things for you. One is like long time or shout out to like your influences like who has always influenced your style or music or like who do you still look up to these are just too big these questions i'm sorry to answer i'm I don't sorry know. i don't know i'm sorry <laughs> they're too big i can't okay I you don't, don't have know. to I, I don't know what to say it's <laughs> yeah. so hard it's so hard to answer the influences question there's yeah. so many my life influenced me yeah you know? fair enough i mean we all got our favorites you know yeah like, i owe the world to hip-hop culture you know it's like djing is an art form I mean, I'm a DJ's DJ. Love it. Um, so, um, I'll put I'm, it to you like this. I'm influenced by my yeah. Put it to me like, what's like what's on your like top Spotify playlist? Like like what's what's what do you have on your iPod, like iPod to speak and like lingo from the like, early to that? What's like your what's your like top playlist right now? NPR right now <laughs> podcast. Oh my god, no. You have to when I you work, escape from the I world. I work in music twenty four seven. I have to take a break. Yes. Okay. So when you take a break from, see, I look at it other way because I work in news and I take a break from news and politics to like so, listen to music so and watch the other movies. way. Think of it the other way. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. No, I mean I love like what am I listening to? Right? Yeah. What are you listening to now? I guess is the right. simplest way to put that. Uh, Janelle Monae mm, on repeat. Yes, absolutely on repeat. Um, Nuclear, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that new song Ashtagil Buzz love it mm. um, actually like the songs from Beardly Wedding 
I like a, a few of them. A few of them are good. I'm supposed to um, see it tonight. I'm excited. <laughs> I want to see it tonight, yeah. too. Like, I'm like, how can I see this movie? Yeah. I have no time. I really want to see this movie. It's apparently got very polarizing reviews. Like, men hate it, surprisingly. Well, yeah. And I mean, women love it. The misogyny is apparent. Asim Chabra trashed it immediately. Oh, I saw it on Twitter. I was like... I'm going to... Yeah, because I was whatever. like, he, are, you are know, you're a dude, so I, don't, I mean, I love Asim. I know him personally, but I'm I like, was Whoa. hanging out with Asim yeah. last two weeks ago. I like, but I, bro, not surprised by his reaction. And it's also like, let's talk about this movie. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's just give some props and value to it existing in its own way. Mm-hmm. I happen to know Rhea Kapoor a little bit, and mm-hmm. I do think like she went there to make something different. Mm-hmm. You're working in a trope of mass consumption are you gonna look for like some groundbreaking like whatever you know like it's yeah. like judge it for the context it's in for yeah. what it's worth you're gonna tell me Humshuckles was a quality movie <laughs> any of these like uh Akshay Kumar movies make any sense yeah. they're nonsense even I mean it's it's the standards by which we make judgment on mm-hmm. when art is produced by non-dominant I things the the stakes are different and higher and they're not given the same they're not afforded the same luxuries they have to be the best the most I, ultimate and that's not that's 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 always going to be a tough standard to fill i mean I I, hate i'm dying that. to see the movie because i think it's it's a story about four women in india and they're challenging convention to me that's enough for me to go see it um no you're right i i don't judge it by the same standard that i would judge like a sultan or like Ekta Tiger that's gonna no matter what do like hundreds of crores of business in India because it's Salman Khan doing like crazy misogynistic sexist things but people love it where he's like 30 years older than his co yes and like time. we're like all okay with that but then but then you have something like Angry Indian Goddesses which again was not like a perfect film but it was so huge for what it was trying to do mm-hmm. in its con like you said in its context and I just don't think like a film like that or maybe even a very the wedding to mainstream cisgendered male Indian critics will like have the same effect as a humshuckle who's not, like yeah. you know but yeah, like he's Asim, one of Asim is gay but that doesn't help because misogyny as we know I mean that's another thing we don't have time to talk about it just because right. you're gay doesn't mean you're not a misogynist okay. and I found I have found very much so in, in in gay male spaces to be a tremendous amount of misogyny I also you know? I also not only that but I feel like just to plug you again when you go to, like, South Asian queer spaces, at least I'll speak for New York, uh-huh. a lot of the times are dominated by cis males. And there isn't a space for queer women, trans women, nope. or you know, gender nonconforming I have folks. Volu- if- I have offered my services. And, yeah. you know, those spaces used to be... This is, me and Gita used to be the DJs for mm. those spaces. And right. now Thunu does DJ sometimes when they have two rooms. But, no, that, that dynamic... So the, the, the dynamic in those spaces has been... Um, the the cis the cis gendered men yeah have definitely like they're just they take up a lot of space you know but to how them. do you how do and you... then and then and then the other people that take up space are straight women that want a safe space <laughs> to dance I'm like oh, you need yeah. a sign because this is not you know like this is you're enough, you're yeah. you're taking advantage you have so much straight privilege and you're coming into these spaces because you and these cisgender men fawn over you yeah. <laughs> right so like that's also like it's about like do you respect the space or do you just looking you know you're not that's not necessarily allyship mm-hmm. that's just like i don't want to be harassed by 
like straight dudes. I want to. So I'm gonna here. assume all these men are gay, and then therefore and then they're they gonna be okay. Yeah, uh, but that's not always true either. No, you know, <laughs> no, it's not me. That's so, um, yeah, yeah, and there is no space. I mean, I started a party. I had a party a short uh, called Lipstick Optional, which was actually designed. It was was the audience was for for all women, all you know, all queer women, but you know, Daisy leaning. It was in mm. Brooklyn. Um, the place went down in flames. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, just in general, and, and how many dyke clubs are there in the world? Anyway, you know, well, it's like just, that's just a that's just a bigger problem. And they general. close in New York too. Like, there's two now in New York. Like, they open, they close. Even for for South Asian queer spaces, I feel like at this phase of life, when I don't want to go out at like 3 a.m., mm-hmm. I want a safe space for me to like hang out with like. Brown women of color that mm-hmm. are queer, mm-hmm. and like, where are all the lesbians in New York? They're like at home playing Scrabble. Like, <laughs> like they're not, you know. Like, I don't, I don't feel like a lot of the queer spaces, except for some of your parties, which mm-hmm. because of who you are, who you've been in the community, people know you, people come out and support mm-hmm. that, and they know what to expect I in mean, that space. I like, think there's a couple of things. I think one is we need good programming. We need mm-hmm. it to be. It can't just be queer women space. It has to be good music queer women's space right. it has to be done and curated and programmed and then when things happen they need to be supported when I did my lipstick optional party I made sure I did it a week before pride and Salga did their pride party the same week mm-hmm. because this other entity usurped pride weekend and Salga was forced to do it the other week how are you going to do that Yeah, that, that felt really that was really painful to me because I had tried so hard that year to announce the dates ahead of time mm-hmm. I mean, we're fighting over such a small number of people. Why are you going to, like, pay attention? And then they will, oh, we didn't know. We, I'm like, come on. But everyone's, like, looking out for themselves in that exactly. regard at and that that's, time. Instead of creating the space for the community, right. you're but looking think, out for your interests. Yeah, so. and I think there is, like, the younger folks' um, identity is more open. It's more fluid. It's more aligned with not just South Asians. It's, in a, it's happening in a broader sense. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I think there's more stuff happening yeah. and going to be happening. You know, Salga is a very important space. It's a very important place, but it isn't the be and the end all in terms of dancing. You know, yeah. Salga is very important and provides a lot of functionality and functions and is a good resource, but it's also a volunteer-led organization that revolves around the dynamics of a volunteer-led organization. Some days, some sometimes it's going to be like the right kind of people, or whatever that means. I'm not saying right or wrong. People who have more energy, people yes. who have more time, you know, people who have different agendas, whatever. It, it, it's That's the nature. Unless it gets to a place where it's like, you know, full-fledged, full-time, and then there's an advisory board and it's structured in a different way, yeah, way yeah. it's hard to make it flow. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many, like, ups and downs of Salga. But I know? think, like, having been in and out of it with the ups and the downs, I can say that, like, my my idea has been broken of, like, this one organization or two organizations, let's say, being like being the catch all for the queer South Asian community. They can't be and they shouldn't be. We shouldn't put the onus on them. But also like because it's not realistic. But mm-hmm. like we also and I think like the time has changed and like social media and all these things. Like people are creating their own spaces. And like how do sure. we then as a community support each other's spaces without competing and saying Salga has to do everything or so and so organization has to do parties and pride and family support and like 
why can't we as a community? I mean, people have to be interested enough to yeah. forge the spaces and to do it. You yeah. know, it's yeah. like I'm done. I did it. I did what I could do. <laughs> you did, you did. I did my parties. There were as queer friendly as I could make them. I yeah. did a girl queer party. Your turn. You know, your turn, people. Come on, kids, take it yeah. up. I'll give you advice. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's necessarily one answer. Yeah. I think people have to be committed. I think misogyny is real, and I think you know misogyny and leadership and directions i think also like people are queer in different ways you know let's look at the queer community at large like white people thought it was so important to get queer marriage at the expense of who like all that energy put in you know for that it's important to some people but to me it's like maintaining heteronormative order world order something i'm not that interested in Right. You know, I don't really care about that. I and care that, that black trans women are dying every day. Right. Okay, that a black trans woman basically started the fight that created pride in the first place and is not acknowledged for it. Right. It's not a bunch of guys in San Francisco. It's, it's if we're going to take it as Stonewall, you know, and that story itself has been co-opted by a skinny white blonde dude in that shitty movie they made about <laughs> they made it. About it. I know, right? I was like, you got to be, <laughs> I can't <laughs> Is this real? Did yeah. you really just put a skinny white dude and made him throw the first brick at the cops and not? Yeah. Oh my God. I was like, yeah. There's no shame in the Hollywood game. It's just I know. shameless. I know. I'm waiting for the, the queer South Asian film. Like, that's it's already happened. It was Chutney Popcorn. <laughs> it did. I do think, like, a mo- like first of all, his, like capturing our history, I think, is one of the, the gonna... things that I really would like. like mm-hmm. I know what you mean. I do think we're seeing more of that, both in, in form of, of web series and, and TV shows, and because of streaming services and things like this, we're getting more and more access to stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We had Fozzie Mears on the podcast. She's doing stuff around that. Like, I do think we're seeing representation. I think I just mean in general, like, our histories, like, mm-hmm. stuff that you, Justin, talking to you in this conversation, like, learning mm-hmm. about, you know, and I know that you are, you are among many in the community that have and- these oral histories right yeah, I mean, I'm maybe, like, maybe yeah there are a lot of oral yeah. histories there's a lot of short-term memory loss yeah that's just a problem with everything yeah. with every organization like even yeah. with, you know other queer organizations like you know salga had a huge relationship with um aperture mm. during the aids crisis i mean you know salga started in 91 like there's we have a long history right. um and you know i'm not i never was actually in salga though <laughs> but people think so um <laughs> But, you know, in community with yeah. and not alone. There's one other thing I wanted to say. Oh, a bit of a little uh, trivia. Yeah. So Chutney Popcorn. Yeah. You know this movie. Yes, I, I remember seeing it. Was like shot many years ago. at my parents' house. Really? Okay, I have to go back and see that. That's so cool. <laughs> my parents have since sold that house. I am very sad <laughs> that they sold that house because that was the house I grew up in and I get very nostalgic and... I know I can always see it in if I put up ch- ch- Chutney Popcorn. Chutney Popcorn was made in, like, 96. That was, like, legendary at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, when I found out about it, like, I think early high school is when I first, mm-hmm. someone mentioned mm-hmm. it to me, and it had been out already for a while, but, like, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't believe that something like that existed. So, yeah, yeah it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. That's so I cool. got cut out of the scene. <laughs> I was just going to say, were you my in it? My parents are extras. I was in the beginning opening scene. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got cut. There's even, yeah, I'm pretty sure I got cut out of it. I mean, that's how movies go. You shoot a lot, you got to get it down to a certain amount of time. It's okay. I was only the, I was the DJ in the movie, obviously. Oh, it opens with a wedding scene. So. <laughs> or maybe there's... I can, you know, I, I have to see it again see if I even made it. Fair enough. Um, last question. I ask all my guests this. What would you say or what, you know? <sighs> the younger self. Say I can save more money. 
<laughs> Save a little more money. Yeah. Uh, take more pictures. I mean, mm. I wish there was more documentation of all that I did, like photos and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, now it's so easy. It's absurd. But back in the day, it was an effort or mm. you needed someone in the crew who wanted to do it. And yeah. crew was always very lean. <laughs> so I think uh, I wish I had taken more, more, just more documentation for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would do anything differently, to yeah. be honest. Um, it could be just a lesson learned like that. Like, I, I think that's a great one, actually. I think, like, even someone asked me about like childhood photos and I was like there's tons of albums in my parents house in LA mm-hmm. like I don't have access to that stuff I've not mm-hmm. digitized that stuff but we mm-hmm. take it for granted right mm-hmm. that like documentation was so difficult yeah like you know just even things like when I made flyers I didn't put the year on them all the time mm. I was like I didn't think about it because I didn't think of it in the context of a longer time span mm. also when you're 20 something if it's different than you're 40 something yeah. your sense of time and the yeah. relationship to time is different do you have a bunch of old flyers? Like, I have a room here? full of old flyers. <gasps> I literally so cool. have a room full of old. I save everything. <laughs> I have a lot of. Are stuff. we going to see you on hoarders or something? <laughs> no, we're not going to see me on hoarders. But I am in talks with uh, NYU Downtown Archive to donate my papers to NYU. That's amazing. Falls Archive, so it'll be part of the downtown collection. That would be amazing. so it'll be available for researchers yes. long after I'm gone. <laughs> legacy building yeah. well thank you Rekha can you just let our listeners know where to like follow you online or find more about you and your work most certainly you can always follow me find me at DJ Rekha R-E-K-H-A the weekly podcast is Bungra and Beyond uh, searchable you want to talk a little bit about the podcast? oh it's it's a weekly uh, it's part of BTR today which mm-hmm. is a uh, a network of different music podcasts and they do like news pieces there's a, a daily talk show mm. Um, they do a lot of live independent music. They're based in New York, and uh, I've been doing it for six years. So the the podcast is pretty straightforward. It's not a lot of talking. It's a 40-minute Bhangra Punjabi set. The words are changing as the music's changing. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a mic break, usually plugging some gigs, and then a little bit of uh, what I call the Beyond set, which is sort of open format, whatever I want to play. So it's sort of stuff that doesn't necessarily fit in categories. Cool. <clears throat> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on Creating Desi Rekha. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Desi. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Desi, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening.